If you would remain standing and take your Bibles and open them to the Gospel of John, chapter 18. There we're continuing our study of John's Gospel. This morning, John chapter 18, verses 1 through 11. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our Lord remains forever. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the Kidron Valley, where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with him. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, Whom do you seek? They said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it, struck the high priest's servant, and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? The word of the Lord. Let's pray and ask for help. Lord, thank you for this text. Even in your arrest, we see glory and beauty. Would you shape us by it today? Would we see the, the cosmic impact of your gospel, your goodness to us? May our lives be changed as a result of it. Lord, this is too big for me or any man. Would your spirit be at work shaping us as your people? We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> I like titles. I say that's a weird thing to like, Quinn. I do. I like the titles of books, articles, movies that we consume. They they give just enough information sometimes. Like a oh, I'm going to know what this is about. Possibilities for the title of this particular sermon are utterly endless. The arrest of Jesus would suffice. But it doesn't really, not by half, it doesn't say enough. We could say Jesus arrests the world. 
That would be a, a, a fitting title, I think. The world comes to arrest him, yet when he announces who he is, they fly to the ground. Who, who's arresting who? Falling down might be a clever, witty title. Could work. We could say something about Malchus losing his ear. Something like hearing loss would be pithy. I've gone with two gardens because I believe that John here is setting it up so well for us to see that this garden, in this garden, there is a reverse going on. And it goes all the way back to the very beginning. Chapter 18 begins this final section of John's gospel. We've finished the farewell discourse. We finished the high priestly prayer of Jesus. And now John gives us the climax of this conflict that has been brewing all throughout the book. Each of the four gospels give us this up-close view of the final night, this night, and then a really up-close view of the following days. Each one highlights details, and unlike the other accounts, John's gospel leaves out the anguish of Jesus in the garden. It's, it's rather blanked in John's gospel. As we saw last week, Jesus prays for glory for his disciples and for us. In the other accounts, he prays for this moment. John also omits the betrayal of Jesus by Judas with a kiss. Though Judas is seen as leading this army in, we don't see him kiss Jesus in this text. So many details in all four accounts. So many details generally. What does the very end of John's gospel say? He says if we tried to write down all the things that happened, the world couldn't hold the books. So many details. So glorious, so massive, so wonderful that the world couldn't hold it. But I think we're given certain details by John that we're meant to pay attention to. Sometimes we have the, the statement that the devil is in the, the details, but here I think we can say that the glory is in the details. This is the, the greatest of all tragedies. Jesus, the greatest leader and teacher of that the world has ever known is betrayed, arrested, killed, and cut down in the prime of life. Jesus' death looked like victory for the corrupt powers, for Satan himself. And yet again and again and again, John has said, you need to look here for his moment of glory and victory and might. For those who know Christ and love him, this is our moment of salvation. It has come. The cross looks like defeat, but it's not. It's victory. John's perspective is very helpful to us because throughout this account, down to the very end of chapter 19, 
Jesus is shown to us as the one who is controlling all of these events. He is not out of control. Things aren't just haphazardly happening to Jesus. Yes, he is going to go on trial, but actually he is putting the world on trial. You and me. This theme all along running through the gospel has been that Jesus is God himself. That he has come to save people and that he is to be believed. So today we're going to look at some some details in this text that kind of show the way. One, a garden. Two, a swap. Substitution. And lastly, a sword and a cup. A garden, a swap, a sword, and a cup. First, a garden. Notice the detail in verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, that is, he had finished praying, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. The very first detail that we should notice, John wants us to see that they cross a valley and a brook. Is he just wasting words? Why is he telling us? And why is he telling us that it's Kidron? We shouldn't look over that little detail. I think it's to remind us and flag us the kingly associations with this moment. Because there has been another hunted king in Israel's history being hunted for his life who crossed this very valley, this very brook, with his followers at night. We saw this when we studied the life of David in First and Second Samuel back in the brewery days of grace. Do you all remember that? The good old brewery days of grace prez. We saw this text. We saw King David. Absalom was attempting a coup against his father to take the throne of Israel. And he got several of David's top officials to come on his side. So the coup was looking like it was working. And then they were actually strong enough to come in and take Jerusalem. And then the text says this. And all the land wept aloud as all the people passed by. And the king crossed the brook Kidron. And all the people passed on toward the wilderness. There's been another king. Pay attention to what's going on. John is flagging us. There's been another king that has done this. Why include this detail? He's saying David's greater son is here. He's the promised one. As opposed to fleeing danger, however, Jesus leaves crossing the brook into danger. Earlier we read this kingly psalm, Psalm 110, and I love what it says at the end. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will, and then it it zeroes in from this massive cosmic view, and then, then it goes all the way down to a king drinking from a brook. He will drink from the brook by the way, therefore he will lift up his head. 
This is, this is him. He's flagging, he's raising all these flags saying, look at the glory of this moment. This is Jesus doing all of this stuff. He's here. This is the cosmic king coming to execute judgment among the nations. Who are going to shatter kings on the earth? Who's going to do that? Who's going to shatter kings? It's Jesus. It's this king, the one who is crossing the Kidron Valley in the night hours. John is just getting started setting the scene for us, but already we should have all our radar should just be going off. Look at who this is. Look at the glory of this moment. And then he loads it with this other detail. It's even more astounding. When Jesus and his disciples crossed the Kidron Valley, John tells us this detail. Listen to it again. There was a garden. And he doesn't just say they went into the garden. Like He says it very distinctly. There was a garden which he and his disciples entered. Again, alarm bells should be ringing in our heads and in our hearts to see the glory and beauty of this moment. Do you remember where John starts his entire narrative? He starts it by ringing a bell. Remember Genesis, right? In the beginning, go all the way back. Remember, remember Genesis. In the beginning was the Word. Remember And what was back there in the beginning? Look, we're we're meant to, we're being invited as John opens up the arrest scene to see all of this as big as it possibly gets. This is huge. This is massive. He opened his gospel there and he's saying, it is big. This is massive. There's a garden. There's a garden that Jesus is entering All the way back in Genesis, we have man and woman that God created, and then he took them and he placed them where? A garden. The beginning of this narrative is a garden here, and at the end, in chapter 19, we'll see it flanked. Now, in this place, in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. He flanks the entire crucifixion narrative of Jesus Christ in a garden. You have to see the beauty of that. What has Christ come to do? And John is telling us he has come to roll back what happened in the garden. He's come to handle it. John's gospel is the only one that remarks on this detail. The other's of course, speak of Gethsemane. Why does John tell us about this garden? John is telling us that all those events that unfolded long, long ago with Adam in the first garden, those events are being rolled back in Jesus. He has come to reverse all of that. The evil of the fall. In Adam, all die in Christ all are made alive. He's coming to conquer the curse. He's fighting back in a garden to reverse what happened in Eden. Jesus is going to succeed in every way that Adam failed. The first Adam 
began life in a garden. Christ, the second Adam, came to the garden at the end of his life. Adam was cast out of the garden because of sin and rebellion. Jesus walked into the garden to overcome sin and rebellion. In the garden, the first Adam sinned. In this garden, the Savior overcomes sin. In the first garden, Adam disobeyed God. In Gethsemane, Jesus fully obeys the will of his Father. In fact, saying, not my will, but your will be done. The exact opposite of what Adam had done. In Eden, Adam hid himself. In Gethsemane, our Lord boldly presents himself, clearly making himself known. He doesn't hide. He steps out saying, who do you seek? In the first garden, the flaming sword was drawn as a threat to kill all who tried to enter. In this garden, the sword is sheathed. Jesus says, put it away. In the first garden, man earned death as a punishment for sin. In the second garden, Jesus would gain resurrected life for himself and all who believe in him by faith. We're invited to see all of this. In the 5th century, Cyril of Alexandria wrote in his commentary on John's Gospel this, The place was a garden, typifying the paradise of old. For in it, as it were, all places were summed up. And in it was consummated our return to man's ancient condition. For in paradise, the troubles of mankind had their origin, while in the garden began Christ's suffering, which brought us deliverance from all evil that had befallen us in time past. It's coming to an end, he says. It's 5th century, Cyril. In John's gospel, creation and salvation have already, we've seen it time and time again, they're bound together. Creation, a new creation. Jesus has come, in fact, to recreate the likes of you and me, sinners. He's come to to make us new. Look at verse 2. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. What a detail. This was the place that Jesus liked to hang out. Because he was the second Adam. Of course, his right place would be a garden. He has come as the second Adam. Here again, we see though coming, just like in the first garden, we have a serpent. Here here we see Judas coming, leading a trail with him, the accuser, the betrayer. Listen, if our Lord wanted to avoid arrest, he he wouldn't have come to this garden. But we've seen, we've known all along that Jesus is in complete control. He came here knowing what was going to happen. They came here often. They came here so often. And and Jesus was with his disciples. And I don't know if this is stretching the connection, but in this garden, God walked with his people in the cool of the day. This is the way things are supposed to be. And I think one lesson that the two gardens teach us is we all need a substitute. In Adam, every single one of us failed. We were all in the garden with him. 
We all gather this morning bearing original sin and actual sin. We were all there with him. And every single one of us today are either in Adam or in Christ. And in Adam is only death. In Christ there is life and fullness. This leads to our second detail. And John highlights for us and wants us to note carefully, and that's a swap. A swap, substitution. Judas knew that he would be there, so he came. Notice verse 3. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Judas is at the head of the procession. Earlier we had seen that Satan had put it in the heart of Judas to betray Jesus. And later we read that Satan entered Judas here in the garden, just as in Eden. You have the second Adam and the serpent is coming. The serpent is coming to do battle with the second Adam. He's coming with a huge band of might. The term here for soldiers is is a very precise term that actually means a tenth of a legion of soldiers. It's a lot. It's a huge force. This is a lot of people. Could be hundreds of soldiers. They come in force because they know when they they arrest Jesus, it, it could cause trouble in the city. There could be a rebellion, and they're coming at night to, to squash Jesus, to squash this rebellion before it has time to get legs. They come at night. Remember, Judas had left, and he told us it was night. It's a dark scene. So, again, is Jesus out of control? No, remember what he, he told Judas. What you do when Judas was leaving, do quickly. It's kind of a bewildering statement, but what he's saying is he's in control of all of it. He's not out of control. We're given this other detail too. So Jesus and his followers are here without mention of them having lighting of any kind because why? Why why didn't I talk about the disciples and Jesus having their flashlights and their lanterns? Because they have the light of the world with them. They're with him. They're with the light. That's why he makes a specific note that Satan is coming, bringing light with them because they're in utter darkness. They can't see a thing. Remarkable shades, beautiful details. So what happens in this encounter? Look at verses 4 and Four through six, then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Jesus is the one who is in utter control. This tent of a legion there with all the soldiers and officers from the Pharisees and the chief priests, they are utterly not in control. They simply aren't. Jesus is putting them on trial. Look, he is the one who initiates the speech. He starts it. Who are you after? 
who are you coming to get? Listen, Jesus could have called down a, a legion, hundreds of legions of warring angels designed to do battle that could inflict incredible damage, and he does none of that. He steps forward, initiating, we're seeking Jesus of Nazareth. And then he answers them in a profound way that we've seen John use throughout his account. He simply says, I am. And the person there, he is understood. He, he only uses two words. I am. That's what he answers. It's, it's an astounding reality. The great I am of the world. The, the one who met Moses in the, the blazing bush that wasn't consumed and introduced himself there. He says to Moses, I am. When they ask you who sent you, you tell them I am sent you. Jesus answers their question, like we're here for Jesus, and he answers with two words, I am. They cannot stand firm against the weight of this glory and majesty of the great I am. They all fall away, some fall to the ground. They can't stand under the weight of the king giving his name. Who's in control? Have, have you ever been humbled and overwhelmed by this king? Even his enemies can't stand before him. Have you ever been staggered by the glory of Christ? Has Jesus ever sent you reeling emotionally, physically, spiritually? He's the majestic king of glory. He says, I'm the bread of life. I'm the light of the world. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. I'm the true vine here. He simply answers, I am. In this terrible moment of betrayal and arrest of Jesus, John gives us a great picture of exactly what Jesus came to do. He came for this swap. Notice verses 7 through 9. So he asked them again, because they, they're flattened. So he brings it up again. Whom do you seek? Again, I see them getting up, dusting themselves off, looking at him with wide-eyed wonder, and somebody like stammering out, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told, I told you again, I am. So if you seek me, let these men go. It's incredible. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken of. Those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. So after everyone, again, they, they get off the ground, dusting themselves off. Like, what just happened? He says, I'm him. I'm the one you're after. All these guys, they get to go away. He's standing in as their substitute, even in his arrest. Look, all of these guys, if this were a cosmic trial, every one of these guys, including everyone in this room today, me included, we deserve this kind of arrest. 
We deserved death. And he's saying, not them, me. Take me, not them. Truly remarkable, me, not them. Calvin says here, quote, here we see how the Son of God not only submits to death of his own accord, that by his obedience he may blot out our transgressions, but also how he discharges the office of a good shepherd protecting his flock. All this stuff in John chapter 10 about Jesus being the good shepherd, and here he is proving it. He will lay down his life for the sheep. John tells us how to view this. He's, he's flashing back to Jesus' words, John chapter 6. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. John 10, I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. And no one, not Satan, not the entire Roman army, not the chief priests, not the Pharisees, nobody is going to snatch them out of my hand. John chapter 17, just last week, I have guarded them, Jesus prayed, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction that the scripture might be fulfilled. He's protecting his own. He's swapping his life for the life of, of a bunch of sinners. Take me. Don't take them. I'm the one you're after. Leave them alone. Let them go free. Not only does he stand between the disciples and the crowd, but by going to the cross, Jesus will stand between heaven and earth for his people. He dies to save his own so we've seen these details in, in the garden, this detail of the swap Jesus for his people. And lastly, we'll look at the details of a sword and a cup. Consider verse 10, then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Jesus, time after time after time, had presented his way of conquering the world. His way was going to be by losing. You're going to see greatness in me, but it's going to be in service. You're going to see the world upended, but it's going to be in death. His whole ministry has been characterized by that teaching, but here at this late hour, Peter still could not abide that his Lord was going to have to die. Not that way. At this point, he utterly believes with all his heart and his whole body that the way of Christ is the way of the sword. Peter thinks in this moment that for the kingdom to come in, Jesus has to be protected and the sword has to be wielded. Remember Peter and John 13? There's no way, Jesus, there's no way I'm letting you wash my feet. My feet are nasty, and you're the Lord. Here again, Peter can't comprehend that the kingdom coming is by grace and not by works. There's no way. He couldn't comprehend it back then. Jesus is washing his feet, saying, this is what I have to do. You need to be cleansed. I have to wash you. No. And here again, the same thing. It's the kingdom has to come by works. It has to come by my efforts. I have to do something. And I think, you know, it's, it's really easy to just flatten Peter out and call him a dunce. 
But if we have one finger pointed at Peter, we have three pointed right back at us. We're the, we're the same way. And we're, we're not letting Peter love Jesus. Look, there's a sense, yes, in which this grace and works reality is going on here, but there's also just the, the, the sense that Peter loved Jesus. Like, don't lay hands on him. Not him. We can certainly have empathy for that. It's interesting, we're, we're given lots of details here about who was hit. John takes time to, to name him Malchus, the servant of the high priest. He, he tries to move, and he was quick enough to keep his head from being split open. That's pretty quick, but he was not quick enough to save his ear. Luke 22 gives us the detail that Jesus immediately healed his ear, which is likely why his name is included in the narratives. That's probably, probably why the early church likely knew Malchus. Because when he went to bed at night, when he laid down his head on his bed... It was laying on the ear that had been cut off. That Jesus restored. He, when he laid down at night, every night of his life, for the rest of his life, he had to reckon with the fact that Peter had cut his ear off in the garden and that Jesus had put it back on. Others might reject him. Others might malign him. But I guarantee you Mal Malchus didn't. The response of Jesus to Peter is very insightful. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Again, a reversal of the unsheathed sword in the Garden of Eden. Then he says this, shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Peter, the kingdom of God does not come that way. The authority of the sword is given to the state. The king is in charge of that too. But his kingdom is coming by the power of the word. The eternal logos that we talked about way back in the chapter 1. That's the power of this kingdom. In the beginning was the word, not a sword. Jesus is letting Peter know that it will come another way. Not like that. We'll see when Jesus goes on trial that he'll explain why his disciples don't use force. He says later, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would be fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not of this world. He's saying it's about something else. If we were paying attention to the clues about the garden, we would understand something of his kingdom. He is coming to roll back the curse and sin and death. Jesus goes on to ask Peter a very insightful question. Shall, shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? What, what in the world? We're talking about the sword and then suddenly Jesus is talking about a cup? He's talking about something to drink? A cup throughout Scripture has been used to, to reference judgment. 
justice, violence. He, he stops the violence from coming against the disciples, but here he says, I will drink the violence. He says something like this. Don't, don't cut the head off of that guy. I have come to die. I'm going to be the one. Isaiah 51, 17. Wake yourself. Wake yourself. Stand up, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of His wrath, who have drunk to the dregs the bowl, the cup of staggering. This is the cup. It's a cup of death. Peter, don't kill that guy. Don't kill him. That's not the way the kingdom comes. The kingdom comes, Jesus says, through my death. I will drink the cup of violence so that y'all can live. Though Jesus didn't deserve it, he was here to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. He was here to drink the cup that you and I absolutely deserve to drink. He drank it in full. What does this mean for us? Everything. We no longer have to be afraid. The wrath of God that is poured out against sin has been poured out on Jesus in our place. He has drunk the cup, the wrath of God for us. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Even while Jesus is being arrested, he's in total control. Just let that wash over you. He's putting the world on trial. And the verdict has already and always been guilty. And instead of the world dying at the cross, he says, I'll die. Yes, the world is on trial. And he's going to die for the world that he loves. What are the implications? Don't, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Don't put your trust in the world. Don't put your trust and faith in the world's system of power. It's not the way the kingdom of God comes. Don't trust in yourself. Don't trust in the sword. Trust in your king who came into this garden and said, I'll, I'll drink the cup. I'll take the sword. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this uh, incredible um, text about um, these moments in another garden. Would you shape us by them? Lord, may we see this swap, this substitute that you have offered for us. May we revel in it and enjoy it. May we live in light of your kingdom that comes a different way. Not by the way the world sees power, but by your death, Christ, our King. Help us to see and take in these gorgeous truths. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.